Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. You're falling down a well. Ah! <laughs> We've got My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. For the pur- purposes of this uh, this particular podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. And uh, this is We've Got Mail, the podcast where you control the conversation right here at Critically Acclaimed. You write into our show. We have an email address. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or, if you choose, you can write into our P.O. box with a good old-fashioned snail mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Well, I, 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 I resent that it's called snail mail. What do you have against snails? Nothing. They're a noble, noble creature. But calling it snail mail is kind of pejorative to snails, wouldn't you say? Uh, because it's not as fast as an electron, which I agree with. That is scientifically provable. Uh, our P.O. Box, Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. It's an electron? Uh, email, electronic mail, electrons travel faster than snails, the mollusks. That is a scientific fact. <laughs> I, I saw the movie Turbo. Okay, I'm just going to throw it out there the that Turbo, that documentary... Uh, Kind of throws some shade in the direction of your argument, the, but anyway, the documentary film Turbo. <laughs> I digress. Anyway, yeah. So uh, we we like to just yield the floor here um, at uh, We've Got Mail, and uh, we in particular we want to yield the floor right at the start uh, to the first letters we've actually gotten well, we, to our PO box. We, we've gotten a few other things too, but yeah, uh, but these are proper is, letters that we were got intended like for the letter, show. Letters in envelopes, and this is really wonderful. So um, here is a letter on paper mm. uh, from. Uh, just, it's just signed off the letter C. Uh, just like it, emails. Have they, they kidnapped Luca? Do they? That's <laughs> it's made up of uh, magazine cutouts. Wow, uh, you found looks... real magazines. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what what movie was it? Somebody committed a crime and they had to give an anonymous tip to the police, uh-huh. and they said, "Now we just have to find a payphone." <laughs> like they didn't know know how to do that. Well, one, of my, find w- a... one of my favorite gags ever was in the movie Who's Harry Crumb. Where they oh, yeah, did the whole paste different magazine letters, uh-huh. and uh, I'll tell you one thing about these kidnappers: you find the crazy typewriter that made this letter, <laughs> and you found your kidnappers. <laughs> That's cute. Uh, but yes, our, our letter on actual paper uh, says, "Dear gentlemen, when it comes to re- uh, time to review movies of the week, Bib states that uh, quote on the critically acclaimed scale, sea of average, most films are average." Now that you're approaching episode two hundred, it finally occurred to me to ask. Are most films average? Mm. Thus, I've entertained myself immensely by recording both your scores for every film you've reviewed on your podcast. Whoa. Strictly new releases. Okay. I'd like to preface my results by saying the few points a few points of note. Episodes 1 to 96 are not available on Libsyn, so I've ha- I haven't had the privilege of recording those results. The last okay. episodes I've listened to before sending this was number 183. So the results I'm about to share with you only cover episodes 97 to 183. Uh, to clarify, uh, those episodes were part of the Schmoes No Network. That's right. They were not available on this feed originally, and uh, that they network were on is a different network. Yeah. And that network appears to have uh, retired. Uh, so there may come a time when we can revisit could, those some point. I don't should, think they'd mind. We should I think, write. We know the the managers over there. We should. We should, write we should emails ask. But like, ask, yeah, yeah. But I, I think they wouldn't mind since they're not doing anything with them. But we can check. But anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, when it comes to recording your ratings. 
if if you did not explicitly say C minus C or C plus, I marked that review as forgot to rate. Uh, this could happen if you reviewed a film and gave your opinions, but moved on to the next review without giving a, a letter grading. Or uh, this can happen if you say I agree when listening to the others' rating, since you didn't explicitly rate your review. Finally, yeah, since I'm assuming Whitney will be reading this letter, indeed <laughs> I am. Uh, I'd like Bibbs to try and guess his results. Oh snap! Uh, the only data he can have before guessing is the total number of films reviewed, and if okay. he says uses the percentages of his final data without revealing which percentage is for which rating. Now, without further ado, Bibbs, total films are, films reviewed, 247. Okay. Whitney, total films reviewed, 354. Damn. Uh, total films Where reviewed, do you find the 435. Uh, I don't know. It's <laughs> incredible. But yeah, I, I, I was I'm trying, to, trying to get You're on the, a kick here. We're um, both so busy, and yet Whitney... Well, anyway. So, uh, Bibbs' results... Uh, C plus. What would you say your percentage of C plus ratings are? Um, because you got. I'm gonna say forty three. Hmm. Close. Uh, of you gave you gave C plus uh, ratings to ninety eight films. Okay. Which constitutes thirty nine percent of your okay, total films. Okay, that's reviewed. not bad. Uh, what would you say is your C rating? My C rating. I'm going to say thirty nine again. Oh, 25%. Only 25? You 63 Cs, that's 25%. Well, aren't I the nice and, uh, one? And you gave, which means you gave 19% C minuses, that's 49 C minuses. Oh, and, I, uh, wait, I misheard you. I thought that was, I was saying my C minus uh, thing. So 25% no, okay. was the C plus. Was C, C no, thir- 39% okay. is C plus, 25% uh. C, and 19% C minus. So you are very generous. Uh, and, of course... One D, uh, <laughs> yeah, which we gave to the movie Cats, and I stand uh, by that D. And thir- thirty-six films you forgot to rate. <laughs> I feel like I probably just said I agree with you. Fourteen percent. I feel like I probably just said I agree with you on those, but whatever. I worry. Uh, meanwhile, uh, my results: I gave one hundred and forty-three C plus ratings, which is forty percent of my ratings. Wow. Uh, I gave one hundred and sixteen Cs, which is thirty-two percent. Seventy-six C minuses, twenty-one percent. 1D, 0.3%. And I forgot to rate 18 films, which is 5%. That's a lot. So yeah, um, a few fun facts. Uh, you fellas had opposing reviews, one C plus and one uh, and one C minus, on only four films. Hmm. Army of the Dead, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, The Lodge, and Terminator Dark Fate. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, Army of the Dead, I think I gave a C minus, and you gave a C plus. I think I gave a, I think I gave yeah. a marginal C plus, just because uh, it was a reasonably good time. Yeah. I'm thinking of anything, because I definitely gave a C plus, because I, I love that I, movie. Yeah. I couldn't stand that movie. Uh, same with The Lodge, I gave that a C plus. I couldn't and, stand it. And Terminator Dark Fate, I, I, I like I think, The Lodge. I think it slid under a C minus, I think it's fine, actually. Yeah. Um, on episode 104, you both of you forgot to rate nine of the films reviewed. This was the only episode where you have no ratings. We just we just forgot nine, to do it all together. That huh? must have been like the short films or, or some such, oh, where we reviewed like a big pile. Yeah. Um, Whitney originally rated The Lodge as a C, but Bibbs convinced him into giving it a C plus. Uh, Whitney rated Sonic the Hedgehog as better than Mac and Me, but not as good as Detective Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> Whitney rated Hillbilly Elegy a donut. <laughs> Bibbs rated the 12 Pups of Christmas as a pound sign. I got a hashtag. <laughs> Bibbs will occasionally give a movie two ratings. Example, Spiral from the Book of Saw. He rated a C for the Saw for a Saw film, but C minus as a film. In these cases, I counted the rating as uh, that he counted as a film. That's fair. 
as you can see, according to you fellas, most movies are actually good. I hope you got something out of this and had fun with the numbers because I sure did. If you want, I can share this, share the Google document that has every film and rating as well as pie charts with your critically acclaimed email if you're interested in the full results. Lastly, I wanted to ask if episodes 1 through 96 will be available again at some point. Sincerely, C. Uh, yeah, we'll look into that. I don't know where we'd put them, but uh, we can definitely look into uh, getting those episodes out there again. In particular, I missed some of our episodes of the two-shot I think yeah, our Caddyshack episode is gone. Oh, that's, that's a shame. You know? Yeah, um, very fond of some of our pairings. Uh, yeah. the, um, Kazam and the Man Who Fell to Earth was a good one. Was a good one. And, uh, and Bicycle Thieves and Jingle All the Way is maybe our best one. I think it's the most uh, inspired we've ever been. I think it's easily our best. <laughs> okay, we should sort of file for these paper letters. We should. We You're in charge them. of that. <laughs> Great. Put me in charge of that. Yeah, do it. All right. Uh, here's our second paper Ooh, letter. Ooh, more paper oh, letters. God. Thank you, by the way, for everyone who, who sent us in a paper letter. It's no. fancy. It's fancy I, to get mail. I like it. I like getting mail. Yeah. I've always liked getting postcards. Uh, I understand it's really common now. Most people do a lot of their shopping just through mail order, mm-hmm. but uh, it's still exciting when you get something in the mail, like it a package. I had a birthday recently, and I treated myself to a, like eleven books of poetry. Um, the Everyman Library puts out these little kind of mini hardbound editions, and yeah. I found this big lot of them on eBay. We have so a couple I, of I paid uh, a, almost no money for. We, we, we can't books. afford a lot of them, but we have a couple of like subscription services. Like um, we have one. I forget what it's called, but we have one where they send us actually like. Nice whole bean coffee. We grounded ourselves. Okay, we get like, it like every other like week, those, and it lasts subscriptions. Us. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty inexpensive actually, and it's so much better than the coffee you get at the store. <laughs> like I, I, that's like one of our one of our big vices. Like we just can't well, handle the, the, that coffee. Uh, not that LA is like a coffee town. But I think every town's sort of a coffee town now. No, it's it is, it's yeah. you know wherever wherever it's being gentrified, you get fancy coffee. Right. And there are some good coffees to be had. But sure, you have to but go you, out to the shop to get it. And you're going to pay. Store. And you're going to pay extra. And, and you're going to pay a heck of a lot extra. If you want to make yeah. it at home, it's it, the extra fifty cents it costs mm. to get decent coffee is worth it. Uh, brief aside, uh, I went to college in uh, Tacoma, Washington, in the late 90s what right when this is like in the heart of the coffee boom like things were really exploding in terms of coffee and starbucks is based out of seattle so i was in the pacific northwest when Mm. all this was happening uh listeners if you remember something called a photomat um (laughs) photomats were these little booths out in grocery store parking lots where you take your film to be developed back before digital cameras and um when film cameras started sort of failing and they became less popular and digital cameras started taking over. Well, the cameras themselves worked fine. Well, the, work, they just, they the, weren't, the cameras worked, but yeah, anymore, yeah. The, developing pictures just became a, a little more of a niche uh, interest. And so Starbucks coffee and a lot of like local coffee makers moved into those little photo mats. So mm-hmm. the original Starbucks where you just drive through and get this really nice cup of coffee. Starbucks is everywhere now. Their coffee is shit. It's not great. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if that's because... Their iced tea is good. Uh, I think their iced tea is better than coffee bean. And their iced tea isn't brewed from leaves. It's from a syrup. And it's still better than coffee bean. It's true. It's still good. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll still drink that syrupy nonsense. I would drink the syrup straight if I could. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if that was... Uh, a change in their recipe or if our standards have simply risen, but uh, I'm probably a little bit of both. Anyway, here's a letter from Topher the Elder on a piece of paper. Uh, Dear Bibbs and R.M. Mixie, I hope this letter finds you safe and well from the world's ills, e.g. the virus, wildfires, and space jam. 
Uh, barely survived Space all, Jam. All three of those, awful. Um, yeah. This past week, I was blessed with eight new episodes of Leverage after yeah. the show had been off the air for eight years. This is not the first time this has happened. The same thing happened with Will and Grace and Prison Break. This does seem to be a relatively modern phenomenon, though. Do you have any insight on why this is or the economics of why this is happening? Does the existence of a built-in audience somehow make a show more viable after several years when it when it wasn't when it got canceled? I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, best wishes and many thanks to Over the Elder. And look, he even, he even signed it by hand, which yeah. is like, extra classy. Um, so yeah, so some shows mm-hmm. go off the air for a long time, and then for whatever reason, they come back for a season or two. It happened to Mad About You. Mm-hmm. It happened to... Uh, the aforementioned shows. Happened and the X-Files. X-Files yeah. is, a, is a prime example. And poof. Yeah, the, those return episodes. There was there, one good episode. Maybe two, but like, yeah. yeah, it was mostly not really worth it. Um, basically, what happens is TV, as we've seen on our podcast, Cancel Too Soon, is full of failures. It's mm. full of stuff. They full of, they're constantly investing in things that don't go anywhere. Yeah. So if they have done a show that has, whether they're they're aware of it or whether they were surprised at the legs that it has. And they find out like on streaming, you know, they're still really, mm-hmm. these shows are still really doing well. Um, there's still a built in audience for it. It makes more sense probably to invest in a couple more seasons of the X-Files than to try something similar that oh. may or may not work at all. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be an event. Yeah. It's going to be on the cover of all the magazines. You're going to be able to promote the hell out of it on all the websites. Your stars are still probably pretty famous since the show is still popular. Um, so, and also it makes sense to not bring it back indefinitely because if the, if it's, if the show is such a cachet, mm-hmm. the stars are probably either, sitting pretty and don't really have need to work that much or they're already in demand yeah like jillian yeah. anderson's busy you know <laughs> so it it's it makes sense it's just basically it's reasonably cost effective we know there's a built-in audience and fuck it why not yeah i um especially now that everything is just sort of blurred together. Popular culture is more massive than it's ever been. Yeah. There's just more to sift through than there ever has been before. And Mm -hmm. uh, who's to say, maybe it'll just continue to grow. Maybe it'll shrink at some point, probably just continue to grow. Uh, And if you can do anything to stand out from this blur, then you're going to do that. Uh, if, If you're trying to make a smart financial decision. So yeah, if, if Will and Grace has a built-in audience and you can, you know, make the stars align and the rights, you know, lapse back into whatever studio you're working for, then you'll probably do that. That's why we yeah. get stuff like Fuller House. What what what, what, did, what did they bring back recently? Like a Nickelodeon show oh, where, uh, like, it, it starred like a, a teenage star, but now she's an adult and she's a parent. They've done that oh, they, a couple they, they, times. They, 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 they did it with it Full House. With um, the, they did that with... Uh, uh, like or something like that. No, um, I want to say, did they do it with Blossom? Yeah, I think they did it with Blossom. The Blossom they yeah, did they it with, bring, um, um, with Punky that, Brewster as well. What was, that? what was the one on TGI Fridays? Go to the head of the class. Boy Meets World. Boy, oh, there you go. Boy, there was Boy Girl Meets, Meets World. World. Yeah, yeah did uh, that. So, uh, there are worse ideas. It's ha- and TV's been doing that for forever. They brought back I Love Lucy how many times? Yeah, it's like there's yeah. the Lucy show, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's because uh, things become embellished by memory, don't they? Yeah. Uh, you remember the good parts. You don't have to sort of keep on tuning in week after week while the show is still new and perhaps suffering creatively. Yeah. Uh, it's rare that a show goes out on its greatest season. Uh, I'm sure there are examples. It's people, happened, people but it's, it's, pretty them, but, uh, it's pretty rare. I remember, uh, I think John Cleese was talking about this in regards to Faulty Towers. Mm. Faulty Towers was an incredibly 
acclaimed sitcom where uh, John Cleese was running uh, a bed and breakfast, and it was very silly. It's a really, really horrible inn, and yeah, he's, he's a horrible, he, petty guy. He's just an yeah. asshole who runs an inn. And um, parts of it have aged very badly, parts of it are still funny. Uh, regardless, uh, it was did okay, but it was so well remembered that I think they brought it back for another season after a while, mm. and it wasn't as well. It wasn't received as well. And John Cleese is like, "Yeah, you only remembered the good stuff. <laughs> Some of the first seasons sucked too. Mm. Like we we tend to look at things that we like and just sort of." Look at them in the best possible way. Yeah, and like, we forget um, sometimes that a lot of X-Files episodes suck. Well, the X-Files is the perfect example of, of this. I think mm. Twin Peaks as well, where it mm. starts really strong and it has like a good solid few years. I, Twin Peaks one year, uh, X-Files, maybe the first like five or even six seasons mm. were really good. Yeah, th- they're uh, mostly anthology the, shows, Monster mm. of the Week, so some of them are better than others, but it was pretty consistent for a yeah, while. Pretty, yeah, pretty consistent. And there were bad episodes in mm. there. But then you get to like season seven, eight, nine, like in the later years when uh, David Duchovny had left mm-hmm. and Gillian Anderson wasn't in it as much. And yeah. they fo- focused on these new characters. If you had continued watching then, you would just be disappointed. Yeah. And it wasn't. There were some good episodes in, yeah. here and there, but they became the minority. But you, you, know, you know. stop the show, you wait a decade, you let reruns sort of circulate. People, uh, and now that everything's on demand, people can go back to just the good parts, exactly. embellishing it, making the show seem even better in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's this new kind of cultural cachet, some, in some cases with a brand new generation of viewers yep. who've never seen the show before. I know that was the case with Friends. Yeah. Uh, Friends was put well, on they... all these streaming services, and all of a sudden, it was like rediscovered by, uh, yeah. by people in, their, uh, in high school. They didn't bring Friends back. They just did a reunion special, yeah, which yeah. honestly, fine. <laughs> no, we they... don't need more Friends. Even even when Friends was on the air, there was a lot of controversy about how much the cast was being paid. They knew that they were on the hottest show on the on Mm -hmm. the air, so they said, "Hey, we're on the hottest show on the air. Pay us a bunch." And And the studio said, "We're not good." And they said, "We can walk." And they said, "Oh, okay, okay, we'll pay you a bunch." And they're actually paying what the actors asked for, uh, and good for them. Yeah, no, honestly, millions of dollars per episode. The the network was making a shit ton of money specifically because they went to work that day. Uh It's more money than any human being needs, but yeah, if you is, ask for it and they will give it to you, it's like I'm not going to begrudge them that. They, is they're, making, they're earning it. Making I mean, a half-hour sitcom worth, you know, the two to five million dollars, whatever they were getting, maybe not. You know, yeah. that's that's arguable. But if yeah. the studio is making that much money, at least give some of it to the cast. Damn right. Uh, so uh, they were not going to bring back friends because they know what they're worth, and <laughs> especially now yeah. that a lot of them are movie stars. It's Same like, thing with Seinfeld. You're not going to get you're not going to get a whole season out of Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's like the, yeah. these people. Are like how many how many Emmys does Julie, Julie Louis Dreyfus have now? Like uh, more 25? than God. Yeah, <laughs> she has more Emmys than they have like in the truck waiting to get picked up for the next Emmys. So yeah, uh, they're they're not going to do a whole season of those shows because yeah. the cast is now mm. so famous that they can't yeah. afford them anymore I'd but yeah they can do a, a reunion special are there any like shows that you think would actually be worth bringing back because every once in a while it works Twin Peaks of the Return was totally worth it you know uh, like yeah, it, it, yeah. it can work so are there any shows that were whether they were successful mm. or only cult favorites that you think that if you brought it back now same cast same continuity might actually be fun um there's there's been one that I've, I've I think I've even pitched it on the show before but mm. bring back Tiny Toon Adventures uh, they brought okay. back they brought back Animaniacs. That was the more beloved one. I was always a Tiny Toons guy. I preferred that show. I know that's I, I tried watching the new Animaniacs and I couldn't get into it. I think I, they, I I think they of, lost some of the zazz. Oh, they lost some of the zazz. I actually think the new one is like a lot more bitter than the original, which I think works in its favor. But uh, 
you, what you do is you you reboot Tiny Toons, but they're not 12 anymore. Now they're in their 40s. Yeah. Like time has continued to pass for the Tiny Toons and it's about the making of a reunion show. So it's sort of like a backstage drama of trying to get the Tiny Toons reboot off of the ground as we've caught up with the Tiny Toons characters now that they're in their 40s. And of course, in, in my version of things, everything's depressing for them. Like Babs runs an acting school, but she never got the big break that she needed to. Buster retired from acting. He's like a real estate agent. Uh, Hampton died. And, <laughs> and, uh, Why? Well, Don Mesick passed away in 1997. Okay, I, I don't want to recast him, but... Uh, that's fine, that's Of course, fine. Joel Askey, who that. plays Plucky Duck, also passed away, so you'd, mm. you'd have to recast some of these people. Uh, but yeah, Plucky Duck is now, you know, still really hustling, but only, you can only get, like, commercial work, and this is sort of like their big break. They're finally mm. back, but now they're sort of wrestling with the fact that they haven't acted for a long time. They went yeah. to school for acting, their careers didn't quite pan out, and now the, the reunion special is back. So... Yeah. I think something like that might be, be kind fun. of fun. That'd be fun. Uh, I um, would like to see, I, if I could bring back anything, I'd bring back Farscape. Okay. Farscape is, uh, which you need to see one of these days. You would love <laughs> Farscape. But Farscape was a great sci-fi show. It took a little while to find its footing, but once it did, it was consistently great. Um, and um, it ended in a weird way. Mm. Uh, it ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, and then there was such a, there were so many complaints from the fans that they decided to bring it back for like a miniseries to wrap up the story. Mm. Um, and the miniseries was rushed, but good. Okay. You know, they, they clearly were racing through everything they had planned for the last season. Um, but, you know, it ended with uh, John and Aaron. They have a, a newborn child. Mm. That kid would be an adult now. Okay. Let that kid be the protagonist. And let's see, like, you know, the, the older uh, cast that most yeah. of whom I think is still around uh, are, are basically... Yeah, it, it's kind of like Avatar The Legend of Korra, but in Farscape. Okay. So you see how things have evolved, you see how the political climate in the galaxy is a little mm. different. It could be really great. Yeah. Uh, any anthology show you could bring back. I know they were talking about rebooting Tales from the Crypt. The legal uh, issues. You, you could do, yeah. I mean, you could do that, why not? Yeah. Just, you know, John Cassier is still around, you just make another yeah. puppet. Because there's legal issues, yeah, my understanding. Yeah. It's about who owns it's the like, rights or whatever. Like, I think it's like split, split between Fox and HBO. It's, it's another it's a, Batman scenario. Yeah, like Disney kind of owns Netflix. some of that 1960s Batman show now or yeah, something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how that works. Uh, which is, I'm sure Warner Brothers loves! Um... <laughs> But yeah, that's that's my trying first. To, yeah, trying to think of other other shows they should bring, like mm. even a lot of my favorite shows, I wouldn't want to bring back. Yeah, uh, and sometimes they did, and it was not a good idea. I, I do not want to see more news radio. I think news radio. Yeah. radio that's one of my favorite. My favorite sitcom of the '90s, and it just live action. It's anyway. like, oh boy, yeah. more Night Court. No, leave it. Let it be. No. Let let Night Court. Well, stay Night Court. Where it is. Night Court didn't stay in the public consciousness. Night Court is mostly forgotten. I it's think it's kind of a cult show at this point. Yeah, yeah. so anyway. it, it wouldn't be rebooted. I don't know, but um, fun to think about it. Yeah, and and we've talked a lot about sort of rebooting or bringing back a lot of the canceled too soon shows. Sure. Um, Duke and Birdie came back. I haven't had a chance to watch the new ones yet. I'm looking forward to it. What was the title of that show with Peter Laurie and Vincent? Oh, that was a good one. What Uh, was that? Where? Yeah, it was, was, and and I think CBS owns the right to that one. So they could do it on Paramount plus. I mean, you can't get Peter. Who do you get to replace Peter Laurie and Vincent Price? Um, Surely we could find some, but, um, uh, Keith, David and Ken Forey. Uh, <laughs> uh, ever since I saw that documentary film Horror and War, I want collector's see, item. Collector's item. I want to see yeah. uh, uh, Ken Forey and Keith David in a reboot of Collector's Item. That's a really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's I'm down. Let's do that. That's great. Just like these, two, yeah. these two, like they're older guys. These I two think iconic their, horror actors. They're both in are, like their early seventies now. We're searching for rare antiquities, yeah. and the antiquities are cursed, or people are getting killed around them. And every week, there's some kind of horrible thing that happens. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Love it. 
That'd be a great one. Yeah, co- yeah. reboot collector's item. That, Actually, that, that on that note, Friday Thirteenth the series would be fun. Sure. Yeah, you, yeah. The, the core cast wasn't like central to that show. No, you could so, totally yeah. bring it back with like yeah, Dif- different people or yeah. new people. Yeah. So, some somebody new. Friday, if you're not the, familiar, uh, Friday Thirteenth the series had nothing to do with Jason Voorhees. It was about a uh, antique shop where all of the antiques were haunted. And uh, when well, the not, owner... not all of there was like a room downstairs. Well, they, a lot of them. The haunted okay, antiques. a significant amount of the antiques were cursed items and yeah. had like supernatural powers. Uh, and uh, when the owner died, they went into liquidation, and they just all like were just Scattered, bought up by yeah. random people. And when like uh, the the distant relatives finally come to pick up the store, they find out that like all these cursed ob- sold, hundreds yeah. of cursed objects are just out there in the world, and people are dying and like being liquefied and being like possessed by demons. And shit and they have to get all of them back it's a fun show actually mm. anyway um let's move on okay uh here is another another letter, letter on a paper letter from uh, alex the geek librarian Ooh. Uh, thank you for writing in uh, dear bibs and whitney a few weeks ago on one of your podcasts bibs extra- expressed his exasperation with comic book publishers line of wa- line wide crossovers and cited it as a major contributing factor to why he no longer reads comics while I agree with his general statements, the frequency is too high, the duration is too long, and the hit-to-miss hit ratio in regards to quality is way off, I'm saddened by the effect that they have had on you. There are so many more op- options beyond the traditional capes and cowls genre. Comics and graphic novels can be as lowbrow or base, or, and basic or highbrow and sophisticated as traditional literature or indeed as cinema. I'd love to steer you toward such imprints as Vertigo or Hill House, or away from Marvel and DCV completely, and towards the plethora of third-party and independent publishers flooding the market. Uh, these days, uh, yeah, is that, I, is that I, the whole? I, is that the whole no, no, oh, um, there's yeah, there's a lot more. Okay, um, uh, but t- does it move on from that point? Um, I know both time and money are a constant concern to which I say many graphic novels can be casually consumed in one or two sittings and quote, your local library system probably has more than you can read in your lifetime for free. As a fan of storytelling in general, I particularly enjoy story uh, stories about stories and storytelling mm. with varying levels of uh, trans textuality, meta textuality. Uh, with that in mind, I would make the following recommendations. Mm. Uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, in which the personification of storytelling and imagination must decide what, uh, to what extent he is willing to change, whether he can fulfill that purpose while trying to make amends. I have read Sandman. It made me cry multiple times, not just because of the content of the story, but because while reading it, I thought to myself, I could never create anything this good. <laughs> it's, that Sandman is uncanny. Sandman is a great achievement. I've... I've tried Sandman. Not into I, it. No, it, I just, it's off, it gets off to about, a rocky start. Okay. Like it's, it's like initially it's I kind of a vertigo. Beginning, it's, so yeah. it's kind of a vertigo comic, and they he, he was under mandate to include some superhero stuff, and all, right. all of that stuff was kind of antithetical to what the, it would become. Yeah. So once it settles in, like about twelve issues in, it's just perfect. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't get quite that far. I, yeah. I, I'm just not a big fan of Neil Gaiman in general. I, I read yeah. one of his novels, and I hated it like with a fiery oh. passion. I did finish the whole thing, but yeah, it was just quite bad. Uh, and yeah, I just wasn't able to get into his particular brand of like adolescent gothiness. And I like yeah. adolescent gothiness. Oh yeah, Death the High Cost of Living is great by itself. Mm. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, right, well, uh, we also recommended Fables, in which mm. uh, the fairy tale characters you grew up with have fled their stories and are hiding in an apartment complex in New York. And there was a TV show, wasn't that? Wasn't there? Uh, no, but there was a similar themed show. Oh, okay. uh, but uh, I've read some of Fables. Uh, that, Another that, one I couldn't quite conceit. get into. That's yeah. a conceit that's been tossed about. Like, what are the fairy tale characters in a modern context? You yeah. see that a lot. Yeah. Um, Unwritten, in which the son mm. of an author, uh, a mix between Milna and Rowling, uh, suggests with the fact that he can't live up to the character his father, ba- his fa- father based on him and is named after him, until he finds out that his father's stories may be more substantial than he realized. Mm. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with... That one I don't know. Uh, saga, 
Mm. What if the Montagues and Capulets were warring alien races? Romeo and Juliet had a baby and are on the run because both sides want to kill them. This is a giant blue hairless... <laughs> There's a giant blue hairless cat that can tell you why you're lying. People with TVs for heads and plenty of queer positivity. Uh, I haven't so, read all of that, but I have read some of Saga and it is very good. Okay. I'm a big, and, I was generally a big Brian K. Vaughn fan. There you go. All right. Uh, and Lock and Key, uh, in mm. which the Lock children... L O C K E uh, learn what learn that when their father died, they inherited more than a big spooky mansion in Lovecraft, Massachusetts, <laughs> or the magical keys hidden within. They must confront his sins and finish the story they've only come into at the end. Uh, and that that is a TV show. Or was yeah, I think or, or was just. Now, yeah. I'm, was I'm not sure if that was. I'm not TV. sure if that's a cancel too soon show or not. That might mm. that might qualify actually. Yeah. Um, what's that? So is that the one with Elliot Page or? Um... No, I think you're thinking of. Um, that one that but it's not locking key. no 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 let's no. um oh, what's, it's not midnight society what's that one called oh umbrella academy. umbrella that academy it? Okay, that's yeah. it okay. that's that's the one i read umbrella academy yeah. Yeah. people were screaming that title at us i'm sure like uh, we know <laughs> um yeah and the uh, lock and key uh has had two seasons already and it's been renewed for a third there was also a failed pilot so maybe one day we could do that but okay. that was like a different era they tried it yeah. again uh, um but you know, um, I, I went to Comic Con and sort of found a lot of comics that I was more into than the superhero stuff because mm-hmm. I I kind of long given up on the superhero stuff. I just sure. sort of lost interest after a while. But I did find comics by authors like Seth uh, mm. or um, uh, a lot a lot more sort of like or um, uh, uh, um, Alison Bechtel. Uh, I read like I found Fun Home and I find that to be an incredibly yeah. Yeah. moving book. It um, is that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I finally got back to like Art Spiegelman's Mouse and the, and the works of Chris Ware and a lot of these sort of uh, superstars of the uh, of the indie circuit, uh, and I found a lot of those to be really interesting. I, I don't have anything against comics as a form. I just have uh, a big issue with a lot of the moral absolutism of superheroes, and superheroes right. do take up the lion's share of the medium. Well, they, less so now than they used to. Actually, yeah. in fact, uh, that's something that a lot of people are kind of unwilling to really deal with is the how much in particular manga has taken over the American market and how mm. manga is actually much more diverse in terms of genre and mm. uh, storytelling yeah, than American comics have been for a while because American comics have been largely dominated, at least man- in sales. Manga and anime you know, are, are, in, are interesting in that they're uh, huge money makers. They're just enormous uh, pieces of just the, the entertainment marketplace yeah. and they're still cult. Uh, like, they, they still have just I sort of a niche appeal, I despite the, the fact that they have this huge audience. I think they're only cult because older people to whom manga was cult mm. uh, still get to control too much of the conversation. And I think totally. a lot of younger people don't see them that way. Mm. Um, but uh, to, to answer your point uh, about the... And I think uh, maybe I came across a little too harsh. Mm. Um, what I had said was I had been following a lot of superhero comics, and I found myself increasingly frustrated that the superhero stories that I was enjoying were constantly being interrupted by corporate-mandated crossover events that meant that it was very difficult to just get a good long run of Fantastic Four without having to have them deal with Civil War. Infinity something. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And it just, you know, once in a while, it's really cool, but it became a yearly thing, and it just prevented there from being any sort of meaningful status quo, because the status quo was always being uh, uprooted. And as I had said, Joe Quesada, who was editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, I don't know who is now, um, uh, he said, if you don't like it, stop buying it and we'll stop doing it. So I did. Mm-hmm. And I've gone back, as I said, I've gone back, there have been a couple of uh, Marvel and DC 
uh, stories that people have recommended to me. And I went back and read uh, some of Dan Slott's Silver Surfer run, which was great. Uh, mm. Matt Fraction's uh, uh, Hawkeye was truly excellent. Um, but uh, I never quite went back to Marvel and DC Comics because I saw that, once again, every couple of years, there was some major thing that would prevent me from getting my feet wet and, like, getting used to the status quo and actually picking up on these characters again. Um, I have not given up on comics as a medium. Mm. I think that's important to state. And if I, if, it made, if I made it sound like I had, then I apologize. Comics are a beautiful medium. Comics are an incredible medium with, that is full of an incredible, uh, uh, diverse storytelling possibilities and storytellers. And there's a lot of comics. I, I don't, largely just for money reasons, I don't keep up with comics in the way that I used to, but I still love comics and I still read some comics. Um, in that time when I wasn't reading a lot of superhero comics, I did keep up with a lot of stuff. A couple of recommendations, just since you gave me a few. Um, I'm a big fan of Noel Stevenson. Uh, they did uh, Nimona, which is a really wonderful graphic novel about a uh, changeling who, uh, or a shapeshifter rather, who uh, gets involved in you know fantasy world affairs. Uh, I think Noel Stevenson also did um, Lumberjanes, which is a great comic. Oh, you you showed me some of that. I, one, Lumberjanes man. is wonderful. Lumberjanes is a a bunch of really cool young women at a summer camp, and they get involved in a lot of like uh, adventurous goings on and I think the supernatural ends up being involved too and it's just really really cool it's the exact kind of thing I would have loved uh, to have seen when I was a kid mm. uh, and even reading as an adult it's just really really entertaining along those lines also I'm a big fan of the comic series Bad Machinery by John Allison uh, which is um basically a teen story about a bunch of kids who like to solve mysteries but also a bunch of surreal things happen to um it's uh just charming as hell Mm. Just absolutely a delightful character-driven romp, and I'm a mm. big, big, big fan. So, okay. um, so that's a couple. Okay. Um, okay. I, again, I don't get to keep up as much as I'd like, but I do still love comics. Thank you for recommendations. I will check out the ones I hadn't heard of, mm. uh, and uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I've, I've read Sandman. I haven't read any yeah. of those others. Unwritten I've, sounds yeah. interesting. I'll definitely yeah. look F that Fables over. and Lock and Key. I've, I've heard the names yeah. whispered. Um, these days, I'm much more interested in sort of like going back seeing, like, old Windsor mm. McKay comics and, like, mm. trying to find a, a lot of the history. Crazy of, cat. Yeah, a crazy uh, A lot of the older stuff, sort of seeing where the, the medium came from is a lot more interesting to me. Yeah, oh, get, get, yourself one of those, new stuff. get yourself one of those nice, giant, hardcover coffee book editions mm. of uh, Little Nemo. Yeah. Some of those, uh, some of those things Nemo's are incredible. Adventures in Slumberland yeah. is, is yeah. some really beautiful art. Uh, and there's a little bit more to this letter. Oh, um, lastly, I wanted to send you this movie. And here it is. Okay, what do we it's, got here? It got a, a DVD in the mail. Uh, the Empty Man. I'm going oh, to make yeah. a little effort to hide my bias here. I think this is a hidden gem that slipped through the pandemic crevasse. I think it is a great adaptation. It follows the tone and feeling of the source material without being slavishly devoted to it. It strikes a perfect balance of pacing, slow burn without being boring. I think the Oscars should, re should create an award for location scouting so James <laughs> Lucarda, Ralph Moran, and Christopher R. Scott can be recognized for their work here. I always try to keep my expectations low when I watch a movie, but when I've been looking forward to this, I wasn't I wasn't let down. Hope you guys get a chance to watch it and maybe drop a mention of it in one of your shows shows uh, iron list e runner-up maybe hmm. uh, as always thank you for all you do keep up the good works sincerely alex the geek librarian p.s i found the empty man at a steal four dollars purchase at the red box nice. so i'm glad to gift it forward yeah and it, is in, it is in a red box it's box. in a red I was box wondering box. about that did you yeah. just rent a red box and send and it to steal it yeah. um but uh, <laughs> I mean, no, thank I'd, you for that I'd, I'd be fine you know take down I'd, the system but uh red box is not a bad deal it's fine um right. but uh i had not seen the empty man 
Mm-hmm. Empty Man is an interesting case where it came and went. The reviews were not kind, but oh, very, to be f- very unkind. In well, fact, to is... be fair, that's true for most horror movies. Mm-hmm. In my experience, a lot of uh, publications will send people who te- don't understand horror at all to horror movies sometimes, and they'll knock a movie down for the exact things that make a horror movie great. That's that's not a unilateral, but I've seen it too often to ignore it. I, I don't um, mind an outsider perspective. I don't but, either. Uh, yeah, that's, I don't that's either. Fine. But I feel sometimes people just don't understand the medium terribly well, or the mm. or specifically the genre. And I feel like it's really common for very good horror movies to end up with a rotten Rotten Tomato score, and then like a year or two later, people are like. Hey, when, As Above, So Below was amazing. What the, the hell the happened? Horror, when the horror fans get a hold of yeah. it. So, I'm, so the fact that it got bad reviews means nothing to me. The fact that it's got a cult following, and a lot of people are saying that uh, the critics were wrong, that intrigues me. So mm-hmm. I'm, I was going to check it out at some point eventually. Thank you for this. I will definitely do so, and we'll definitely talk about it at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. That means that means a lot to us. Okay. And uh, and now we're going to move back away from our paper letters. Uh, thank you for writing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's again uh, PO Box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. I like getting paper letters. Same. It's great. But now we're going to move back to the the screens, the okay. emails, and we do get plenty well, we, of emails, and we, we like tons. to hear those from you too. We have so. more emails than we do paper at the moment. Mm-hmm. So for now, we're going to focus on those because we've caught up. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Slug Breath. Nice. Hello, Slug Breath. Nice. Uh, a slu- that sounds like um, like a Lord of the Rings. Like what? what what's the one? Like, what's the like one you mentioned? Calvin would call the, Hobbs. The, the character you uh, you cite. Oh, worm tongue. Worm tongue. That's yeah, the one. You, the you most subtly named lot, character yeah. in all of. <laughs> He's, he's one of the few characters in Lord of the Rings who is just exactly what it says on the tan. Like, yeah. he was, wasn't hiding that character at all. This is notable because that's a character you mention pretty constantly, and it's not a character I remember at all from yeah. these movies. Okay, he's he's the Lord of the Rings equivalent of Starscream there. Okay. Does that help? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but Slug Breath says, uh, Hello, Bibbs and Dwayne Meister McCool. I just saw the 1946 film noir Black Angel and once again noted something that I've been thinking about since film... Uh, about films from that era. Whenever there's to be a scene transition where one scene fades into the other, there's a small brief visual cut just before the transition starts, almost like a short flash. It's Mm. very brief, but noticeable enough uh, for me to know that the transition is on its way. It's hard for me to describe... Mm. But it's as if the brightness of the film suddenly changes. I know what you're talking a little about. Bit. I know exactly what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, we can explain about. this, yeah. Um, I was wondering if I'm just imagining things, if this is a product of how films were edited in the time, or if it's just a digital artifact from when the films were released on DVD or Blu-ray. Thanks for any insight on the matter. Thank um, you for having such great and interesting podcasts. That has led me to checking out films I would otherwise would have missed, such as Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar and My Dinner with Andre. Uh, keep up the great work, Slug Breath. Slug Breath, thank you so much. And that is a great question that people mm. don't talk about enough. I know uh, this confused me for a while. And then uh, when I found out why it why it happens, it made a lot of sense. And you are very very uh, uh, observant because mm. you're not. This isn't weird. This is totally happening. Um, so here's the deal: before we had digital editing, uh, edits had to be made physically on film. You would take a a reel of film, mm. and you would find the exact frame, or rather the two frames you wanted to cut. You cut right between those two. You cut them, you splice them, as they say in the industry, and then you tape them to the next uh, piece of film you want them to have. Mm-hmm. Usually, most cuts are seamless. You just cut from one frame to the next. So here's Humphrey Bogart, and now he's talking to Lauren Bacall. Boom. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if you wanted to have a transition, either to maybe a title card, like uh, 
San Francisco, 1956, or you wanted to say like, oh, but next time on, or if you wanted to fade, mm-hmm. you wanted to fade to black, or you wanted to cross dissolve so that one image fades out as another one fades in simultaneously. Uh, that was a physical process that had to be done to the they film. Had, they had to lay the two layer, two strips of film over on top of one another. And when you lay two strips of translucent film on top of each other, each one becomes less bright because mm. less light is shining through it. Now, they're not going to do that usually for the entire shot because then the entire shot, like the first, the last like 30 seconds of conversation mm. would be darker than they needed to be. Right. But there's usually at least a few frames, maybe a second or two where they do need to start that process. And those frames Mm. will be darker as they uh, lead to the scene transition. They'll overexpose the last few frames of the last film strip that they're fading out on to try to make up for the fact that it's being darkened by the layered film. Yeah. But it's usually perceptible. It's, it's definitely perceptible because this was all like essentially trial and error. You had to develop it a very certain way and it was just people doing it by hand. You couldn't like digitally correct it or, uh, or, you know, use f- a different kind of filmic processes to sort of layer the two images together like they did uh, with some later photographic processes. Yeah. And they could course, start developing the film onto one strip and, and the, the yeah. fades would be a lot cleaner. And now, of course, we do uh, almost all editing digitally and you don't have any of that issue whatsoever. But yeah, you can watch an older movie and once, like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Orson Welles slumps down in a chair and this all of a sudden it just gets a little bit darker. Yeah, you can think the, to yourself, oh, scene transition the, coming this up. This blip in, in lighting. Yeah. Um, the or the... Ones, or the the end title yeah. card is coming up, one or both. A, a lot of the older films you watch, especially if they're being taken care of by a, like a prestige outlet like the Criterion Collection or TCM, will try to go for really clean masters. And they'll try to find uh, uncut masters that don't yet necessarily have scribes on them. Uh, as Projectionists would have to like scratch little circles in the corner. Mm-hmm. Often that wasn't the case, though. And you can watch old films where the cue marks are still up there in the corner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been a projectionist so long, I see one of those little cue marks. I'm like six seconds to an edit. Yep. I was like, because it, it's at uh, twelve frame, twelve feet six frames from the end, and, and one foot six frames from the end, and that's mm-hmm. a, a span of about six seconds. And yeah. so I, I see that, and I always start counting in my head. There's a also a, six seconds edit. There it is. <laughs> okay. There's also a phenomenon I've, I've discovered, and this is really only, you're only going to see this mm-hmm. uh, probably in a revival screening. And even then, I think it's less common now than it used to be. But um, because films are, re- are released on different reels, the, the, the uh, projectionists have to uh, connect them. Mm. The parts where the film, one reel of film connects to the other get more wear and tear than the rest because right. they're being handled by human hands. And so sometimes you'll notice just, just for a split second, maybe two, uh this the film gets really rough and a little scratchier mm. and you just know that like I, was, I remember watching highlander on like the big screen of like a midnight movie mm. 15 years ago now when i first really noticed this but i was like oh they real change <laughs> yeah because it looks fine it looks fine it looks fine scratchy as fuck for three seconds mm. and we're back yeah yeah real change boom um so yeah that's that's it's it's uh it's interesting i think i hope you find it interesting but um, yeah, it's just a practical thing. That was the only way they could do complicated scene transitions like fades and cross dissolves for a long time. Nowadays, we don't have that issue. One thing I remember um, 
encountered a bit ago. I was watching, um, I watch most of my movies on Blu-ray nowadays or on streaming mm-hmm. uh, because that's where a lot of them are available. But, you know, I still own a lot of DVDs and sometimes I watch DVDs too. And I was watching a DVD and something happened that I'd forgotten about, which was a layer change. A layer change? Yeah. DVDs uh, are uh, uh, encoded but they have dual layer DVDs, so they're encoded. Oh, so there's yeah, yeah, so there's yeah. one. So you can the the laser goes around once, and then it can go around again and get. And this is why the initially a lot of DVDs were like flip DVDs, mm. like half the information would be on one half of the DVD, half the information would be on the other half. But then they realized right. they can put twice as much information on one DVD if you just encode it to multiple layers. So. The pro- the only issue with that though is that about halfway through a lot of movies, there's a split second stutter, not a, not a full stop, uh-huh. just one second where all of a sudden just everything goes out for like a second. The sound goes out for like a couple of frames. Uh-huh. This the frame stops for like a split second. They try to hide it pretty well, but it's got to show up at pretty much the exact same point in the movie every time, and there's not always a good point for it. Uh-huh. And so every once in a while you watch a DVD, and about like an hour, and it just goes, oh, and then Jerry went to. The place where we, yeah. that little bit is the layer change. It's a little, it's just a little <laughs> thing. Blu-rays don't really have that yeah. problem because they're so fast. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, DVDs uh, still have those. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, I the think way so. These, uh, it's really nerdy, but I love it. What, what, I, what I love is that um, you know, all of these processes and all of these ways of presenting movies really fly in the face of this idea of cinematic purity mm-hmm. that especially a lot of filmmakers now are talking about they want their films to be seen in a theater because a it's more profitable mm-hmm. but they, uh, get, they actually get like percentages yeah. off of what they make in theaters more than what they'd get on yeah. a video uh, but also you know the idea of see, seeing a film on a gigantic screen in a dark room when mm-hmm. you're really quiet and you're fo- forced to pay attention is mm-hmm. there's yeah the, I, I appreciate the audio that. and visual quality and, is usually better than you'd get at home even under and, the best circumstances and filmmakers IMAX is huge no one's fight, pretending otherwise fight to have you know just the perfect kind of aesthetics just the perfect kind of color timing mm-hmm. they want to make sure the film is edited perfectly they want to make a perfect film they want to make sure and, motion uh, smoothing is not on yeah uh yeah you put on uh when david lynch first started putting his films on dvd the ones he owns he said okay turn off all the lights wait till it's night turn on all the lights and now i'm before the film can even start you're gonna adjust your tv because it's too bright <laughs> and it's like you gotta turn it down because it has this has to look just right and here i am a film projectionist saying well mr david lynch I have final cut on your movie. <laughs> if there's a reel missing in the middle, that's up to me now, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like, well, you should be presenting it right. You're right, I should be, but I might not. <laughs> it's kind of in my hands, isn't it? I'm god of everything now as a projectionist. A projectionist has the final cut on everything, and they can adjust, you know, the framing and the focus and all the rest of that. And cut shit out if they want. Yeah, if if, if they're renegades. <laughs> Uh, if, if you uh, if you find a print of Fast Times at Ridgemont High that does not have a bunch of splices on either end of all the nude scenes, you have something very rare. Uh, yeah, people were real yeah. childish about that shit. Oh well, I mean that that's how stag reels were made. People just cut all the sex scenes out of any movie and just put them all on one reel. Yeah, and watch it late at night without any customers. Um, yeah, this this idea of cinematic purity is constantly broken by the actual technicals of making film. <laughs> Uh, because the technicals are always going to be there. And I think those limitations are what make film interesting. The thumbprints are what give it its personality, not its yeah. perfection. Yeah. When something's too slick, it's not interesting to me. Yeah, and, and again, it's it's real, real simple. Mm-hmm. You you might want Dune to be seen on the big screen, and hey, I would love to see it on the big screen, but let me tell you something. 
if you don't see it in its initial three, four week run, mm-hmm. you will never see it on the big screen. Like it, it might come back like once in a while, but yeah. yeah, this is the vast majority of the human species from like four months after the four weeks after the movie comes out until the end of time will only see that movie outside of a movie theater. So it had better work in other places. And film needs to be flexible. Mm. Sorry, it needs to be flexible. It needs to be adaptable. It needs to work in other environments. You can't control that environment. You can't control where someone reads a book. Mm-hmm. No one ever said, like, I wrote Pride and Prejudice to, to be, be read, read in a gazebo. Well, and only a gazebo. I, I, some authors have said this book is best when read by firelight. Like, like that kind of sure, thing. Sure, the atmosphere uh, yeah. is nice, but you can't control that. And if it mm. doesn't work on a bus... It doesn't work. <laughs> so anyway, so the, the the nuts and bolts and bits and bobs of film are really interesting. And these I think these imperfections, if you can call them that, mm. uh, give them more personality. And once you know how they work and once you know how to look for them, you can kind of just see the people like in the editing bay. Yeah. You, you're looking at the Maltese Falcon and you see that transition coming. You think to yourself, no, John Houston was right there. Making that happen. I can see it happening right now. Hmm. And there's something just really lovely about that. I love feeling like I can connect to the people making it. I love it when it feels hands-on. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, let's move on. That's a great question. Thank uh, you for that. Here's a question from Will. Hello, Will. Hi, Will. Um, hello, gentlemen, and happy Criterion Collection 50% off sale to you. Um, oh, God, I wish I could afford it. Yeah. The Criterion <laughs> so Collection great. falls on my birthday every year, and it's typically at a time when I'm like just flat broke. Yeah. And also, it's around my birthday. I want to buy stuff for myself just in case. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend not to indulge. But uh, yeah, I always get excited when Barnes & Noble has its bi-yearly 50% off sale of Criterion movies. And I hope you two were able to enjoy it as well. I haven't been able to really take advantage of it until this year when my wife and I decided to get a few over the course of the entire month of July. We got a total of six this month. Ooh. I wanted to tell you that you two were the reason why I bought four of the six Sight Unseen. Whoa! I would love to speak to you about them, uh, but what would be an incredibly long letter, so I'll just ask you questions about two of the films uh, and point out an incredible double feature. The six films I dived into this month were Moonstruck. Nice. Memories of Murder. I actually didn't realize Moonstruck yeah. was on Criterion. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I missed it, that. It's, okay. it's a more recent one. But oh, yeah. yeah, I missed that. Okay, that's um, awesome. Memories of Murder. Great movie. Uh, which I haven't seen. Um, great movie. Irma Vap. Okay. Uh, Ikiru. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca. Mm. And Eraserhead. Nice. Uh, all but one I found amazing, which leads to my first question. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Why is Irma Vep? <laughs> uh, this is a film you two mentioned several months ago when talking about films that were about the making of movies. And while I will say it does a really good job of showing behind the camera drama between actors, the director and the crew, I can't help but feel like I missed some important piece of context to fully understand the film. After hearing so many people gush about this movie, I was left utterly cold by it and... And after the absolutely bonkers ending, which doesn't really resolve anything, I couldn't help but feel like I watched a movie that really had no intention of being understood by the viewer, or at least someone outside of the industry. Because it is clear from the included essays that the director had something to say, but I couldn't tell you what that was based on the film alone. Oh. Make less commercial crap. Don't bother with remakes. Why mm. does don't don't make Maggie Chung angry while she's wearing leather? Well, that's uh, just good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Was this made for general audiences or just people in the industry? Can you shed some light on this film, please? Uh, my second question involves Rebecca. My wife selected this film to watch, and I'm so glad she did. My much shorter than the first question is this. Why isn't Miss Danvers considered to be one of the great movie villains of cinema history? Uh, even just thinking about what she does over the course of the film sends chills up my spine. Feel her underwear. Feel it. <laughs> Truly a great performance that informs and really makes the movie as chilling as it is. Uh, 
I wish to leave you both with a thank you, but it is because of you that I, you introduced me to my two new favorite movies, Ikudu and Eraserhead. Yes. Two of the best films ever made. Um, I need you both know, uh, need you both to know that watching those films back to back in that order was one of the most amazing experiences. So thanks all to you. What a double feature. That's a hell of a night, yeah. Ikudu and Eraserhead. Oh my God. Weird. It's like, um, like hope in the face of death and then just death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that would make a kick-ass double feature. All right. So we got two questions here. One is about why Miss Danvers isn't considered one of the great movie villains. And two is about Irma Vep. I'm going to leave you to talk about Irma Vep because I've never seen all of Irma Vep. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I, I will say I'm disappointed that uh, if you go through a criterion set, they do they're not giving you the context you need to understand the movie. Mm. It's, one, it's one thing to like, we don't want to necessarily spoon feed the movie to you, but yeah. I feel like one of the things that Criterion is usually really good at is here's a movie that might not be from your country. Here's a movie that might not be from your era. Here's a movie that might be from yeah, your genre. There's an essay that yeah. puts it into a little bit of context. Yeah, here, it might be really experimental. And if you just watch it without knowing anything, maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. Mm. And if you have questions, I feel like that's what the Criterion bonus content should be for. Mm. So I'm disappointed about that. But uh, I'll let you handle that in a second. Regarding Miss Danvers, there was a time when Miss Danvers was considered one of the great movie villains. Mm. I thoroughly remember this. I remember people talking about it. Uh, Rebecca was a one best picture. It was a long time one of Hitchcock's most celebrated movies. I think it's been a bit overshadowed in the last few decades, but it's still really, really great. Um, what happens is movies over time get talked about less and fewer and fewer movies uh, retain this aura of the grand. Mm. Uh, even so there's a lot of movies that can be enormously popular and be really influential and have characters that everybody knows and loves and then wait 25 years and they just get a little bit more obscure, yeah. a little bit mm. more obscure. And nowadays a lot of people couldn't tell you about Miss Danvers, which is a shame because I agree with you. I think she's an incredible villain. Yeah. Uh, also, I think uh, queerness has a lot to do with that. Miss Dan mm. Danvers is a queer villain, and she uh, she's coded queer because you couldn't just say gay characters in the nineteen forties. But like, it's pretty it's against, clear. It was against code. It was a terrible time. But um, yeah, it's pretty clear that uh, that Miss Danvers was in love with Rebecca and was perhaps even Rebecca's lover. And uh, when that finally like broke in the critical world yeah, many that, years later that became that, not, became that became not of, just subtext but common commonly accepted commonly common accepted knowledge, text yeah. uh, i think a lot of homophobia started to leak in it's like oh well there's part of it was she's a, a queer villain so let's not talk about her and part of it is oh she's queer but but she's a villain and we don't want to celebrate queerness that way yeah queer uh, villainy so, yeah, specifically yeah so we, we we want the the queer representation to be a little bit more celebratory so um mm. I, I think miss danvers maybe sort of squeezed into a crack in there and yeah a little was, venn diagram yeah. maybe i don't know but i what mm. i do think is there regardless of of either of those things time is just also a factor and mm. there's a lot of movies that had truly great villains and nowadays a lot of people are just less familiar with them and i blame critics <laughs> i blame and i i put my i try but I blame myself as much as anybody. Critics have been doing, generally speaking, too poor a job of keeping older movies a part of the regular conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, uh, and and you especially don't have to in the social media age yeah. when like immediate reactions to the the new is what dominates a lot of the conversation. And there's so many great ways to do it. There's so many. Yeah. You don't have to give up that contemporary quality. You can just make sure that when an, a new movie evokes something older or has a clear influence of something older bring that up 
Mm-hmm. Hey, critics, you you talk about like, oh, I saw the new Shang Chi, and it's what I haven't seen it yet, but like, and it's amazing. Everyone I, says it's I really saw it great. This morning. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people are saying it's really, really amazing, awesome, cool. Uh, you saw the new Hugh Jackman movie. That's really, really great. Next time you watch an old movie at home, write about that too. At least give it a tweet or an mm-hmm. Instagram. Hey, I watched Black Angel with Dan Duryea and Peter Lorre. It was cool or whatever. It made me think this. Just remind people that these movies are out there and available and that they're still relevant. Mm. That's how we do that. And that's how we can fix this and how we can make sure that, you know, there will always be films that fall out of favor. There will always be films that be forgotten. But it's an important job of a film critic to make sure that as few as possible do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. And uh, the struggle with that, though, is, uh, and this is something I've uh, run up against, we talked about this, is when to bring something up again. Uh, like uh, you and I have have long uh, writing careers, articles that go way, way back. And it's like, we, we rescued something like a decade ago. It's right. like, we wrote about this. We talked about it, but a decade has passed since then. Do we write another article about it? And yeah, yeah. you do have to you keep have sort to. of like re-upping and it's difficult to know when to have to re-up because you feel like you had already said your piece already. Uh, so yeah, that's another part of it is we have, we as critics have to, keep on bringing up these films. Yep. not just sort of say our piece, say, yeah. hey, here's a 20-year-old film that's really good. Another 20 years pass. It's a 40-year-old film now. Yeah. to say it again. So People, aren't, people keep, aren't looking keep through our archives. Yeah. Yeah. Nor should well, they. We, hopefully we get better over time. Well, I, so we have I, to keep re-upping. But I, think, you know, yeah. I, but I think another part of this is the way online journalism works. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a time when you could just get a, a back issue of a magazine and read old reviews. And I think, you know, given the opportunity to archive film reviews every outlet should have that mm-hmm. it's like what what is the review of this film from 20 years ago that would provide some valuable can, context not just what critics thought of it at the time but also let you know what the word on the street is of what it is now uh, so there's a lot of factors to that why why miss van danvers was forgotten all right we'll talk about Irma um, uh, Irma Vep was an olivier assayas movie that came out in the late 90s um 96 Irma Vep is 1996. Oh, someone's and, been training for the new releases, or for the movie release dates, Slates. <laughs> you can make fun of me all you like. I'm not making fun of you. Um, that's that's tough. It's hard. Movie release dates are hard. And yeah, it's it's uh, about the making of a re- of a fictional remake of an. Uh, French serial film uh, called Les Vampires, which came out in the 1910s. And uh, yeah, it's about a filmmaker who wants to remake this in the modern day. They cast Maggie Chung. It's all about all of this uh, backstage drama and all of people who are having like have crushes on each other and all of the uh, how the, the director might be losing his mind a little and isn't letting anybody see cuts of the movie or dailies. And uh, and it goes out on this completely noncommittal note. Like there's not really a conclusion to the movie. We just get to see the footage of the movie and how, how mm. kooky it ended up being. Yeah. And uh we learned that one of the conceits is it's based on a silent film and they're trying to make it look like a silent film. They're essentially trying to recreate a lot of the aesthetic. It's based the off the film. Uh, silent film serial Les Vampires. Which I, I just said that. Yeah, um, but, which uh, isn't really a vampire movie. No, Les Vampires are like spies. And yeah. that's their code word. And, and Irma Vep is an yeah. anagram for vampire. I, I know you had uh, said Les Vampires was an mm-hmm. I was leading into my oh, okay, revelation sorry. that it's not a horror movie. But yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, and... Uh, it, it does have this very kind of raw, very handmade quality. It has this sort of docudrama aesthetic to it, which which I really, really appreciate. Uh, and I think the it's being opaque is part of its charm. It's mm. part of its, uh, its raison d'etre. Uh, the fact that 
what you're making is kind of unknowable while you're making it is a big part of it. Um, a lot of people compared it to Day for Night, which is another French film about the making of a movie. Mm. And Day, Day for Night, in fact, is maybe the best film about making of movies. Uh, and Olivier Assayas, I remember, said in interviews at the time that that was too clean a process and he wanted to show kind of how messy it was. So he tries to make something about the making of film, but how it's a lot sloppier. If you want something a little bit more streamlined about the sloppiness of making an indie film, you can watch Tom DeSillo's Living Oblivion. Very uh, funny movie. Which, yeah, which is hilarious. Uh, and Steve, very, very on point. That's Steve really Buscemi what it was like is in the great. 90s. Uh, if you want to know what Brad Pitt is really like, you can watch Living in Oblivion because they take him down. And this was like... Yeah, James LaGrosse plays a character plays who's explicitly based on Brad based Pitt. Based on Brad Pitt. Yeah. Uh, like before Brad Pitt was even this like, like gigantic star. So yeah. they're making fun of this actor just while he's on the rise. Uh, and Peter Dinklage uh, kind of broke out in Living in Oblivion. Yeah. Um, that's about the American indie scene. Uh, Irma Vep is a little bit more about the French indie scene. And I think you needed to have like a, a premier magazine subscription and know what was going on in French <laughs> indie cinema in the late 90s, which I happened to have. So I was like a lot on Irma Vep's wavelength uh, to really understand this kind of chaotic... Mm over sexual drug addled insanity soaked uh french indie scene in the late 90s right and uh, how irma vep was uh, a portrait of that but at the same time was also uh sort of trying to reveal that in cinema there is an element of madness you have to commit to this gigantic slow moving technical dinosaur machine to make a feature film. It's yeah. not it's not like making theater where it's just life on stage. There's a lot more t- to like committing a film to film and editing it all together mm-hmm. and scripting everything and making sure everything goes right, especially if you're making something of a certain size yeah. and you need hundreds and hundreds making, of people working on it. Making a movie is chaos and if you can only yeah. see it from one person's perspective, you'd be amazed anything ever gets done, mm. let alone edited together and turns out good. Yeah. People always talking about like God. How do they not know they were making like such a such a massive turkey? You don't. Mm. On the day, you have no idea. You don't know what's <laughs> gonna. You don't know what's gonna turn out. You trust the director. You do your best, and like sometimes it turns into a real stink burger. Yeah, and and a lot of it is is also. Maggie Chung in that outfit doing violence. I, I, under, <laughs> I admit that's a big part of the charm of Irma Vap. Maggie um, Chung is just a genius. Yeah, yeah. And, and she plays herself in the movie, so yeah. we get to sort of see her you know, interact with all these sort of fictional characters. Uh, the, just that sort of overlap of madness and fiction and reality, uh, along with the messiness of the French independent film scene, makes it a very exciting film for mm. me. I, I watched Le Vampire, and I'm, I'm just sort of charged by it it's been a while since i've seen it though Mm. maybe it's lost some of that charm because it was very immediate to sort of the indie world at the time uh but i hope that helps i hope that can sell the film to you a little bit better yeah Uh, in in its in its that the opacity is actually a a A feature feature, not a bug bug. yeah Yeah. there you go yeah and that's that's difficult to wrap our heads around sometimes i'm constantly whenever i'm watching a movie and i'm not enjoying it i'm constantly Mm. trying to think to myself is there a way to look at this where it's awesome because wouldn't it be great if I found that? Yeah. And then I can say to myself, okay, yeah, but if you look at it as a metaphor for blabbity blue, mm. then all of a sudden everything kind of works. Yeah. And it feels way more focused than it might otherwise have. Mm. Or if you look at it as a meta commentary or something like that. Mm. But then every once in a while you get really like, ooh, this is great. What a wonderful like reversal of everything. And then the movie totally disappoints you by not being that. In the end. Yeah, like, yeah. Something. There's... We were watching a movie called, um, an anime film called Lily Cat. 
and CAT was an acronym. I forget what it was for. Uh, but it was basically this 1980s anime film that was a pretty shameless knockoff of Alien and the Thing. Uh, about a bunch of people in cryo sleep in a ship, and there's a cre- creature on board. There's a creature such, on board, and it might be infecting them. And for like the first half of the movie, the protagonist is the cat. Okay, everyone else is kind of a stupid jerk, but the cat like sees what's going on, and it's like meowing at people who are infected. And we see like the cat like exploring around, and we were like, "This is kind of awesome." Like, what if Alien, but the hero was was Jones, the cat. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. All right, jo- like, Jonesy was the name of the Jonesy cat. The cat. Right, yeah. yeah, what if what if Jonesy was the name of the cat? Was the we know the name of the cat. What if Jonesy was the protagonist of Alien? Mm-hmm. And then we're watching like this is great. What a great idea. And then halfway <laughs> through the movie, the movie revealed no, we're not doing that. And I'm like, oh, well, then that that's sucks. That's and then we kept watching it for a little bit mm-hmm. and we realized that oh, the movie isn't any isn't interesting actually. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. thought it was interesting, but the interesting thing was an accident. And that wasn't what they were doing at all, mm-hmm. and it actually was. It'd be really formulaic and kind of annoying, actually. So we didn't we didn't finish it. So I can't. That's not like a full review Here's of a, Lily Cat because maybe it got better, but it was not. <laughs> we, we weren't watching it for any reason. Ooh. We just stumbled upon it. So you, you remake Alien from the perspective of the cat, but this time the alien kills everybody, and that's just down to the cat and the alien. They're the only things left on yeah. board. And then they high five. Yeah, they say, <laughs> yeah, got him. Let's get to eating. <laughs> Neil's like, I don't eat. I just turn them into eggs and then I die. It's like, oh, well, I'm a cat. I'm going to eat you too. Yeah. Uh, my, my blood is acid. I'll, I'll find a way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we have time for one All more. Right. Uh, here's a letter from James from the Bay. Hello, James from the Bay. Hi, James. Uh, hey, Bibbs. Hi, Luca. And- <laughs> Luca's joining us. Hello. Oh, and uh, I, I could list plenty of examples of films that sort of disappointed me halfway through. There's like a big twist yeah. where they changed themes or changed ideas. It's like, oh, well, that's less interesting than we were leading for hey, before. You want to you wanna join us on the podcast? Oh, you Luca. Luca, Luca is literally reaching up with his front leg and like he, grabbing your he's arm. He's been doing this lately. Every time I'm sitting at the dining room table, he will like stand up on his hind paw, on his back paws, and uh, he'll reach out like he's trying to high five, like, <laughs> then I give him a little high five and he's like, Cool. And then he just sits down. Then he, then he puts on some shades. Yeah, I think he wants some treats. We should wrap this up after this letter. <laughs> okay. so give him some treats. He gets a little hungry. Yeah. Um, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister, me, me, cool. A lot of extra letters in that Ooh. one. A longtime patron and a huge fan. You are always my comfort listens during long drives, uh, times of stress, and whenever I need to work and listen to something. Thank well, you. We hope to fulfill all of those. Means a lot to us. Um, Sorry for this long email. Uh, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, but wanted to get your thoughts on this. Having just seen the supposed backlash against Kevin Smith, and how he has changed things in Masters of the Universe uh, and their characters. I haven't seen this yet. I've heard what's going on. Yeah. The recent backlash that came with The Last Jedi and even with Trek fans now divided, uh, as they are with the recent iterations of modern Trek. Are fans too precious about the franchises they love? Yes. Yeah. Yes is the answer. Um, I, for one, like the changes to the characters, like Luke Skywalker. Changes to franchises that are well-loved, like Star Trek and Masters of the Universe, are needed to uh, really show how versatile and unique the property can be. I, for one, am a child of the 1980s and 1990s. I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, and every week when they came on. But as I have seen Trek ever... Trek ever since the 2009 Star Trek, I do still love it. I feel like it was also a needed change as I feel like ever since Nemesis and Star Trek Enterprise, the format from the Berman slash Pillar era, uh, Rick Berman and Michael Pillar ran the show, uh, was getting stale and needed an update. Don't get me wrong, it's not like I lo- I'm loving Discovery and Picard, but I feel like they're a fresh new take on something that is still Trek. I know uh, that my own kid loves new Trek and from 
from there, I feel like it also helped introduce TNG and the original series Trek to them. Uh, whereas before, it would have been just to introduce them to everything from the original series. Anyway, I love you guys. Thanks for answering my question, James from the Bay. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, Kevin Smith uh, and a and bunch of other writers uh, uh, rebooted He-Man. And they made a bunch of changes, and a lot of people assumed that after She-Ra uh, had sort of uh, dramatically reshaped that series, and by the way, that's a great series. Yeah. A few missteps along the way, but mostly that's a really wonderful new take on She-Ra, and, it's, and I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but a lot of people assumed that Kevin that Smith, you know, this this fanboy icon, would go back to basics and give us like the tough, you know, macho He Man. And it turns out well, how, that how uh, tough and macho was he really? It was wasn't yeah. much of a character. No, it, it was wasn't. a toy commercial. Well, again, and uh, and uh, Kevin Smith subverted a lot of those expectations and made some creative decisions. Again, I haven't seen this yet, but I've read about it. Creative decisions were made that a lot of the stalwart fans of the original series uh, thought were bad changes. Mm. Um. And again, we've seen this in Trek. We've seen this in Star Wars. Mm. Uh, people don't generally like to have the things that they've well, loved for decades be this, changed. And this is this uh, butts heads with um, sort of the the. I don't, I don't want to say negative aspects. Maybe some of the uh, uh, unfortunate features of fandom. Yeah. Uh, far too much. Like I. I started my writing career when sort of like the, the geek wave was at its highest and a lot of the geek heavy properties were the most focused on. They still are, but uh, you know, this, this was, I think, I feel like it's sort of dying down a little bit as opposed to like maybe 10, like five years ago, five, 10 years ago. Uh, and I would go out of screenings of like uh, fan based properties to, that is to say things that had a, a baked in fan base already, the Star yeah. Treks, the Star Wars, the Marvel comics. Uh, yeah. And I heard a lot of people saying that was the film I always wanted, which is and, I've heard that a fair number of times. Yeah, too, and, yeah. Uh, and it was uh, after some random things, which I thought were like just goofy pieces of crap, like the Wolverine, Wolverine or X Men Six or whatever, mm. the one where at the end, like he gets his claws cut off by a giant steel samurai monster, and yeah, and there's a woman who's like spitting acid in his face, and mm. there's a, a fun scene where he's getting shot full of arrows, and and I walked out, and a friend of my friend of mine and co-author said that was the Wolverine film I always wanted, like. That that was that was it. That was the one you always wanted, uh, and uh, and that statement reveals that there's only something very specific that they want. Yeah, and it's it's not that they want something new or creative with those characters. We they want, want a very specific version, just now adapted. We have film. a preconceived notion yeah. of what the character should be, or at least our preferred version of that yeah, character, so, and we want that to be. Uh, given to everybody and for that mm. to become the new baseline. Yeah, so yeah. Fa fans know what they want because they have it already. And yeah. and uh, I long ago started saying, I don't want something I want. I want something I didn't know I wanted. I, I, want, I, want, to be I, wanted, I want to be surprised by something. I want something yeah. new and exciting. I don't want the same feeling I had when I watched Star Wars. I want a new feeling. Yeah. Uh, give me that and I'll get excited about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's enormous hypocrisy too because yeah. the things that we are enormous fans of are the things that did something different usually. Yeah. Um, whether it's a new version of something we already loved like... The Dark Knight Returns was weird when it came out. It was a reimagining of Batman. It was a much darker version of it. And now that's, people that's, consider it their favorite thing. But That's the Frank Miller comic. Yeah, that was like the one okay, where like yeah. it's after he'd become an old man yeah. and things had gotten way worse in Gotham. And like now that that's considered like the Stone Cold classic and it's one of the classics of Batman. But at the time, that was really revolutionary. Um, look at something like Star Wars. Mm -hmm. If uh, 
people responded to Star Wars the way that they respond to new IP now, they would not have been on board with Star Wars. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, if people it were just like... It would have been Valerian. If we listen... Well, <laughs> what I was thinking of would be like, okay, so listen, we only want like what we've already had and what's already popular. So uh, we're not going to make another Star Wars. Thank you. Thank you, George. That was a nice pitch. Uh, let us know when you have another idea for Planet of the Apes. Because that's yeah. what we would have gotten, is more Planet of the Apes. That was the sci-fi franchise was that was successful hit, in the 70s the time. until yeah. Star Wars. We need people to come in with new ideas, yes. We also need people to come in and revolutionize old ideas. We need new takes on things that persist, because well, new takes is what hmm. makes them relevant. Because after, otherwise, they're not relevant anymore. They're only relevant to when Here's, they were originally made, and... Hmm. Star Wars, which is, which is, I mean, arguably that's true of everything. I think that's uh, yeah. true, but I feel like something like people for, like to think about like, oh, Star Wars. Yes, we want the old classic Star Wars. Star Wars was a modern new take on Flash Gordon. Hmm. It was already the thing. If, if you're a Flash Gordon fan, Star Wars would have pissed you off. Like it's, it's like, <laughs> it's like it's, well, what are you doing to, to Flash yeah. Gordon? This is not. This is not my Flash. Star Gordon. Wars yeah. is old. Star Wars yeah. is very fucking old, and in a lot of ways, we've moved past it. Now, well, a lot of ways we haven't, but like to update that and find uh, new modern ways to do it. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, I want my Star Wars movies. Like, I like that the new Mandalorian show is going back to the samurai classics. Cool. Here's the thing. Uh, there's been about like another 60 years of film history to work from <laughs> to inspire you to do more Star Wars. I am not offended if you go to a different well once in a while to keep mm. this thing alive well, rather than just make it the same old thing over and over again. Here's the problem. You're keeping it alive. You're injecting it with new vitality. Here's the thing. We don't need to keep these things alive. I know that. Uh, we can let them stay a, where they are in history. That's a and different that, conversation. Well, and, and here's what leads to that attitude that, that yeah. you're, you're expressing. Um, thanks to home video, people are going to see Star Wars dozens if not hundreds of times people have seen these movies over and over again have you ever encountered the phenomenon where you watch a film dozens upon dozens of times in your youth and then you don't watch it for like a decade or two and then you go back and watch it again yeah the thrill isn't there yeah, uh, at least this well, is this is the way. If it's, it's still good. It can be like sometimes but, uh, a movie really is that good. I Other times, so, but there's yeah. there's this this thing where you're going back and you're it's just sort of something you're doing for like comfort. I've found that if I'm watching a, something I've watched like a hundred times in the past, mm-hmm. and then a big span is gone where I haven't watched it for a long time, mm-hmm. I go back. I'm not really even absorbing it anymore. Yeah, it's sort of like just an intrinsic part of my brain, and I'm not feeling anything while I'm watching it. For me, that varies and, from uh, film to film. Like when I yeah, watched, uh, like I hadn't watched Home Alone. For at least 10 years okay. until we did like a podcast about it a couple of years ago. Then I watched the original and I'd seen Home Alone God knows how many times when I was a kid. Okay. And when I watched it again, I'm like, I realize why this was popular. I realize why I liked it. This movie is really shabby. Yeah. yeah There's yeah. a lot about this movie that does not work as a film. Mm. I see why critics weren't like super high on it when it first came out. But then like a, a year or two ago, I, after many years where I hadn't watched it, and, and I watched the movie all the time on TV when I was younger, The Burbs. <laughs> the Tom Hanks movie, The Burbs. Uh, uh, we got the Blu-ray and we wanted to check it out. And um, that was a sense of rediscovery. That movie was better than I remembered mm. it. That movie is genius. Um, so for me, it varies. Oh, yeah. It can uh, work but, either way. But uh, what I was going to say is, you know, you go back, you, re- you revisit these films. It's not the same feeling is my point. Yeah. Uh, you, but you people not, change. You change. I, you you yeah. change. You grow up. And uh, the reason why, A, it's because a lot of uh, studios have a lot of money to be made of keeping things sort of a permanent part of the consciousness. So yeah. they have to keep on uh, remaking it and making it new all the time. 
But I think the reason why a lot of audiences are responding to like a remake or a reboot or a recent sequel when the original idea is far too familiar is because people can't get high on the original drug anymore. Mm. They need the new uh, designer drug to feel that same high again. So they kind of reboot it, they update it. It's new stuff, but it's giving you a little bit of the old flavor again. So So, so if you're not getting that could only be fulfilled by a new version of the same thing, so like, not the same, the old thing again. So what you're saying is like, okay, so you've been mm. watching the original Star Wars, and yeah, the prequels are old now too, mm. so that's your heroine. Okay, great. Here's your heroine. Enjoy your heroine. Enjoy your heroine. Enjoy your heroine. Oh, Force Awakens? A little bit more heroine. We kind of hit the same notes again. Yeah. More heroine, more heroine. Here's The Last Jedi. Here's some meth. You kind of, and yeah, it's, it's like, like it's it's still it's, gonna it's, do you, but it's not exactly yeah, or, what you were here for. I, I would say, um, uh, what is it, Thorazine that you're supposed to take when you're on at like you're you're having yes. an acid high and you take Thorazine to I, take you down? You know more about it than I do. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, that's like you're you're high and that's sort of the the whatever Neither you're of taking. Us do a lot of drugs. Clearly we're not. not. We're not drug. We're guys. not drug guys. <laughs> Caffeine is my drug. That's what yeah. I do. It's you know black tea. That's as hard as I yeah. go. But um, uh, just it's it's the thing you take to to calm you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're like you're eating spicy food, and uh, to to calm down that metaphor a little bit, you're eating a lot of spicy food. You're used to spicy food, but now it's like the f- the flavor is becoming really familiar to you, and yeah. it doesn't burn you as much. So yeah, Force Awakens is here's like we, we just invented the ghost pepper. Try that. It's like ooh, yeah. that's nice and spicy. S- the same kind of spice, a little stronger. I like that, but it's kind of a similar flavor. And then. Uh, the last Jedi came along and said, here's a big glass of buttermilk. It's going to calm down your palate. It's a different flavor. It's yeah. something to sort of balance what we had before. Yeah. And everybody said, look, no, I don't want the buttermilk. I want the same please. flavor. Yeah. I want a spicier pepper. Yeah. It's, uh, people want these, the same these, thing over and over again. These metaphors are getting incredibly strained, but the I same thing over and over again, it's understandable to want it. But when you get the same thing over and over again, it dies. It, yeah, it becomes so, less relevant. You're not adding anything so new to the mix, and so that's the new stuff means new, nothing. The, these new things are meant to keep the old things alive, yeah. and whether and, or not they deserve to be kept alive when we've explored everything that idea can give to us, well, and we're going back to just getting, I doubt that's true, getting but, sort of like a, a, a sort of a, a pop culture high in a certain kind of way. I think I think that we've already developed an immunity to. I think when people complain about the new He Man or the, the Last Jedi or whatever, mm-hmm. I think what the, we need to do a better job of is reminding people that many of the things that we now take for granted about these long-running stories, characters, franchises, whatever you want to call them, uh, many of the things that we now take for granted and love about them were when they were introduced to it new. Mm. And they were probably met with a bit of, spe- of uh, skepticism as well, but were less aware of it because we didn't have Twitter. Like, yeah. I would, I'll bet you when Empire Strikes Back came out... That there were people like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck is this shit? Mm. So let me tell you, so we got all that movie, getting the whole cast together, and now they split up? And (laughs) and now Luke goes off to meet some old Jedi who could have been helping this entire time, but instead gave up and is now, like, not talking about the Force in reverent tones and is actually kind of funny? What the fuck is this shit? Oh, oh, and at the end, the bad guy just drops something that they never set up before, and now we're all supposed to, like, believe it? Ha! Like, I believe what Darth Vader said. Probably the first thing they're going to say in the next movie is that Darth Vader was full of shit. Mm -hmm. I'll bet people did say that. But we got used to it. 
Well, it became also the, part of the lexicon. We just got used of, to it existing. And, and we didn't that, immediately that, deny it. That tone of conversation uh, either didn't exist or was like such a tiny part of the conversation hmm. that we or, or maybe that, it was a large was, one. It didn't get recorded as much. Yeah, maybe point. it wasn't. It wasn't recorded. That's for you sure. know. We just didn't have. Like, you can this, find you, know. a, you can find a clip online of. Um, who it was? I think it was a critic calling into Siskel and Ebert, oh, yeah. talking about how The Empire Strikes Back wasn't good. And Siskel yeah. and Ebert both gave the film a, a very glowing review. Was, yeah, you know, for them, it was a four star movie. They really loved that movie. And uh, and somebody called in and said, "No, it, it's this doesn't do what I think science fiction ought to do. I think it displays sort of a lack of creativity. It's not very exciting. I think it, it's a little too downbeat for the kind of story it's telling." He was making some legitimate points and yeah, uh, it's a matter of perspective but the, those, some, aren't, some those are and some you know, just sort of, like, sort of complaining think, you know. about you know it's it's profile and you know how it's a little bit overhyped and and Siskel and Ebert of course just said no this I think it's actually quite a good movie but yeah there were people it was not a universally beloved classic right out of the gate there's always going to be somebody who hates something that's beloved so somebody is going to love something that's hated Keeping all of it in part of the conversation is important. Understanding that uh, fans don't dictate how you get to feel about something is mm. something that's really important to remember. Yeah. True. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that is it. That is it for Critically Acclaimed uh, for for our mm. letters show. For this. <laughs> Critically Acclaimed letters show. It's called You've, We've Got Mail. That's it for We've Got Mail. It's, it's, it's actually very warm. I need to open a window in here. Oh, but uh, that's it for We've Got Mail for this week. Thank you, everybody, who wrote in. We didn't get to all our letters. We never do, but we try our best. Uh, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So if you uh, want to write in, you haven't already, or if you just want to write in again, uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or if you would like to send us a letter, a physical letter, you write it out or you type it out or you print it out or... Mm -hmm. Or you put it on muslin or or whatever you want to do. Our uh, our oh Whitney, thank you. Just handed me the address. Our, our, it's uh, please e uh, please actually mail us critically claimed network P.O. Box six four one five six five Los Angeles California nine zero zero six four. That is where we get our mail. <laughs> We're also on Twitter at Critical Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a lot of exclusive shows there, including shows about uh, Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, and commentary tracks. We recently did a commentary track for Who Shot Mr. Burns, the classic two part episode of The Simpsons, and we got a lot more coming as well. Uh, and of course, we have a soap store. Me and M. Lapis da Silva head on over to Etsy.com. And look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. You'll find a lot of designer soaps handcrafted by M. Lapis da Silva and or myself. Uh, we dropped a lot of new designs for August, one of which someone pointed out, mm. it just didn't even occur to me, uh, it looks just like the Tesseract from the MCU. It's just this, it's, it's just, like a, bright, a blue sparkling cube. Well, it's not really sparkling, but it's bright blue and it's kind of translucent, so you got that mm. nice glow to it. Uh, cube and like it looks really cool it's one of our favorite uh, scent profiles that we have it smells like the ocean uh, but with a little bit of lily in there too so it feels really fresh um, so yeah we we totally did that by accident <laughs> when neither of us were thinking in geeky terms we were just thinking about you know oh it looks like the ocean it's great <laughs> it's also the tesseract so if you want a tesseract soap you can get that oh, kind of. I'm trying to think of like an Avengers pun, like a soap Avengers pun. Oh, we had a uh, we. I did a couple on a on a, uh, when we realized this, we we did a Twitter post, and it was like it's low key one of the best soaps uh, that we have. Yada, how about, about Uatu the Washer? It's cosmically cubic. 
well, it is those things. I know. It's not a pun. That's just descriptive. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> that is it for We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Thank you.